Amen. Uh, would you continue standing with me and turn with me in your uh, Bibles to Psalm 19, our text for this morning. I'll give you just a moment to turn there to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, the Psalm of David, beginning in verse 1, David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, even as we've seen in our worship this morning, you are truly our rock and our redeemer. We know that your word is perfect, that your law revives our souls, and yet we are so prone to wonder. Even with your spirit in us, our hearts are constantly, by the, the sin, the flesh that remains, led astray. And so we ask this morning that you would illuminate your word, that you would open our eyes, you would open our minds, you would open our very hearts, the core of who we are, that we would be transformed, not by the words of this man, but by the Holy Scriptures. Lord, we ask that you would speak through this psalm this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in, in 1971, two years after the first moon landing, Edgar Mitchell became the sixth person to walk on the moon. Writing after the fact about his first glimpse of Earth, Midway through a nine-hour mission on the lunar surface, Mitchell says this. Suddenly, from behind the rim of the moon, in long, slow-motion movements of immense majesty, there emerges a sparkling blue and white jewel, a light, delicate, sky-blue sphere laced with slowly swirling veils of white, rising gradually like a small pearl in a thick sea of black mystery. It takes more than a moment to fully realize this is Earth, home. And Mitchell goes on to say, My view of our planet was a glimpse of divinity. 
My view of our planet is a glimpse of divinity. Mitchell himself is not a Christian, but he, along with many astronauts like him, saw very clearly that the universe provides us with a glimpse of God. And this morning, as we consider Psalm 19, David also speaks to us about several ways that God reveals himself. You might be interested to know that Lewis, C.S. Lewis regarded Psalm 19 as the greatest poem in the whole of the Psalter, and one of the greatest poems ever written. But the theology of this psalm is just as good as its poetry. And the main idea of Psalm 19 is this. God's revelation in the skies and in the scriptures demands that we respond in worship. God's revelation in the skies and in the scriptures and his word demands our worshipful response. Let's turn again to the, the scriptures. Verse 1, David says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Usually when we use the word heaven, we're talking about the place where God dwells with his angels presently. We, we pray the, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, for example. But when David writes heaven here, he means to refer to the great expanse above the earth, the universe and all the celestial objects, the sun, moon, stars, planets, and the like. The sky above is another word for the space beyond earth, but it may be more directly referring to the birds of the air and the clouds that we see when we look up in the sky during the daytime. The psalmist says, and I'm using the ESV, that our universe declares or proclaims. These are not subtle words. And in effect, they personify. They, they make the universe as, out to be as if a person that is speaking to us about God. One commentator that I read, defining this word declare, what, what, what does the psalmist really mean by declare? said this, declare is a laudatory declaration of God's deeds in a worship setting. And it's paired with the glory of God or the grandeur of all his perfections. It's as if all the planets and stars are engaged in a cosmic worship service of God, bowing before their maker and sustainer and pointing to him as their source of all their glory. That star that burns at tens of thousands of kelvins is only a shadow of the glory of God. The star's magnificent and even terrifying glory is only a sliver of the majesty of God. That second verb, proclaims, is similarly bold, but it refers typically to the disclosure of something that was not known. Something is taught to us by the universe that we don't necessarily know in of ourselves. And, and what's proclaimed is the work of God's hands. He did all this. He made it all. And so in, in this first verse alone, we have such a beautiful picture of, of the re revelation of God in the universe. There's the glory of God that's declared and likened to this celestial worship service. And there's a proclamation of his good works as a sort of cosmic town herald is announcing the breaking news of the good deeds of the king of all. Any person recognizes that the universe makes a serious statement about something. 
Scientists will study the stars for all sorts of reasons, to understand how the earth works, to anticipate seasons or events, or even astrologists believe that their grasp of the universe allows them to predict the course of human events on earth. Some people argue that the universe declares our insignificance as creatures. We're little more than a speck in an evolutionary process unfolding over billions of years. But even they cannot deny that what's up there makes a powerful statement about, about who we are, about who made it all. And the psalmist, the Christian, we realize that the universe points to the glory of God, the glory of his attributes, the glory of his works. So the next time you look out of the night sky, or, or you awake in the morning to the sweet chirping of the birds, or you behold the storm clouds and thunder and lightning, consider how all the forces of nature are in the psalmist's mind, raising their voices together in the worship of God, heralding his good and wondrous deeds. The universe draws us to worship him. But the psalmist doesn't end there. He goes on in verse 2. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. One thing we didn't mention about the first verse is that those two words, declaration and proclamation, imply a continuing act. It, it, it wasn't a one-time thing when the universe, bam, showed off the glory of God, and it's done. It has nothing more to say to us. Day to day, verse 2 makes abundantly clear, there's an overflow. The universe is pouring out. It, it, it's bubbling over with the knowledge of God for anyone who will listen and behold it. The knowledge of God isn't confined to daylight hours. It radiates in the night just the same. Everywhere we look in nature, we see the Maker. In Bavink's words, creating, sustaining, and governing together form one single mighty ongoing revelation of God. The knowledge revealed is it's not astronomy alone. It's insight into the person of God himself. The only way that we can have any knowledge of God, we can do this thing that we call theology as creatures who can't see God and his glory is if God speaks to us, if he makes himself known, and through the universe, he speaks to us loudly, according to verse 1, and boldly, and, and, and according to verse 2, continually. I love how the Belgic Confession describes natural revelation. It, it, it says, It is before our eyes a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, or as so many characters leading us to see clearly the invisible things of God, even his everlasting power and dignity. Now, if I asked you, and this is a rhetorical question, is the special revelation of God, the revelation that you, you may have already seen, we, we will come to shortly in verse 7, the revelation of God in the scriptures, is it infallible? Is it perfect? Can it never fail you? I'd be willing to bet that... Just about all of you would, would, would raise your hand and say, yes, it absolutely is infallible. But what about his natural revelation? Is, is this general revelation of God in the universe infallible? The answer, friends, is yes. 
Look again to verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. There is not one word of the elegant book of the universe, as the Belgic Confession puts it, that goes unheard by any person in the world. There is never a person recorded in the Bible who turns to God out of general revelation, but the problem is not with the revelation, nor the revealer, but the recipient, us. God's revelation in the universe accomplishes all he intends it to. But the problem lies within us. Paul in Romans 1 says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And our confession puts it this way, the light of nature, the works of creation and providence, do so far manifest God as to leave men, as to leave us, inexcusable. No one can say, God didn't reveal himself to me. All we have to do is look out and see the works of his hands. That's not to mention a distinction that Theologians draw between what we might call immediate and immediate revelation. Revelation that's mediated or mediate is, is made known to us by God. Like how Psalm 19 describes the universe telling us, speaking to us about, about God. But immediate knowledge in Calvin's words is an awareness of divinity implanted within the human mind by God himself. We don't even need the universe, in other words, to, to show us the glory of God. There's even something implanted in our minds, something this psalm doesn't even touch on. So often it seems as if God is silent, as if he's not speaking to us. The Christian goes through difficult times of life, difficult seasons. We feel he's not there with us. The, the agnostic or atheist who, who struggles to believe in God or doesn't, will we'll surely argue that God is silent. But the simplest person and the loftiest academic all must understand that God is never silent. Day to day, the sky, the stars, the birds, the clouds, the universe declares and proclaims the glory of God. And just a final observation about um, these first few verses. Notice that this revelation of God requires no human words. There's a real sense in which God doesn't need us in order to reveal himself. So often I, I think we as Christians fall prey to the belief that we need to convince someone of the existence of God. We, we need to depend on our persuasive apologetic efforts. But see here that God doesn't need you to reveal himself. All that he has made proclaims his glory. As we'll see later in the psalm, however, he chooses to use us. He condescends himself to take on our flesh. And he desires to use you. We continue in the second half of verse 4. 
in them, in, in the heavens, he, God, has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Psalmist gives us another picture here of, of divine natural revelation by pointing to the most important celestial object to life on earth, that is, the sun. And he symbolizes the sun in two ways. First, with the sky like a tent as the backdrop. The sun is pictured as a groom leaving his bridal chamber on the wedding day and heading to claim his bride. This is a picture of celebration. The man's dressed in his finest clothes, full of joy, and publicly proceeding to claim the one he loves. Do you remember the joy, those of you who are married, or even who have observed a wedding, the great joy and celebratory spirits of a wedding day? Ancient Hebrew marriages were special celebrations that involved the whole village coming out. And just as it would have been difficult for any person in town to miss the event, it's impossible for anyone to miss the revelation of God. The only way you could not be present at this wedding would be if you were either entirely indifferent or even actively bitter toward those involved in the celebration. Either you didn't care or you cared not to go. In much the same way, one only ever misses God's revelation, his natural revelation, by our own sinful choice to neglect it. Secondly, the son is compared to a strong man who runs his course with joy. There's a picture of either an athlete running to complete the race, just as the sun completes a, a circuit around the universe. Uh, but scholars know that this may also be the picture of a frenzied warrior rushing into battle with great fervor. In either case, the enthusiasm of the strong man is unmistakable. Any person who encounters him sees the joy in his eyes and his body. So it is with the course of the sun. Nothing's hidden from its heat. All the earth is full of the glory of God. In the same spirit, the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Children, you have no reason to be afraid of the dark. Day to day, night to night, pours out the speech. When you look out at the dark, when you see the skies in the sky, in this, in this, the stars in the sky, you can see the glory of God there. All the universe cries out with joy at the works of God. Do you? Do you join in the chorus? Do you cry out with joy to behold our God? Finally, speaking of the Son and God's revelation, Turretin, Francis Turretin, a, a wonderful reformer who's a little bit less known than some of the other figures we typically talk about, Turretin points this out. He says, God can be savingly known and worshipped only by his light, just as the sun makes itself known to us only by his light. 
So while the kind of revelation that we've been talking about so far, the natural revelation, looking out at everything God has made, well, that reveals to us plenty of things about God. Leaves us without excuse. It is not, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary to salvation. It holds us all responsible and accountable, but it's not the revelation that we need to be saved. The psalmist, beginning in verse 7, then touches on that special revelation of God's word. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Calvin, again, writing about this second part of the psalm, says that it exalts and magnifies the knowledge of God, which shows forth most clearly in his word. That first word in verse 7, used of God's special revelation, is the law of the Lord. From the very beginning of, of the psalms in Psalm 1, this, this word is employed, uh, and it refers to any of God's teachings. It could, it could be the law given at Sinai, all the books of the law, the Pentateuch, or even all the scripture. There's a general heading. The law of the Lord is perfect. All of it is good. And don't miss that alongside this shift from general to special revelation, we see a change in the name of God. It moves from God to the Lord, or, or the covenant name Yahweh for God. It's a personalization there's, a, there's an increasing intimacy of God revealed in his special revelation. Where natural revelation reveals the sovereign power of God, declaring to us we're all responsible to bow before him in worship. Special revelation reveals his personality, his covenantal will, his plan to dwell with his people. This is just the first of six aspects of the revelation in God's word that the psalmist highlights. And these aren't exactly neat categories with, with clear distinctions between them, but we will highlight briefly some unique characteristics of each of these words the psalmist uses for the law of God. Still in verse 7, he, he says the law of the Lord is perfect, flawless. There's no error in it. It's said to revive the soul. Sometimes as Christians, we think of the law as a burden. We, even Paul talks about the law bringing wrath or the letter of the law killing. But for the psalmist and for the Christian in the real sense, the law is a blessing. God's self-revelation and his commands offers us great hope. Yes, it, it brings a condemnation of sin. But his law is joined together with promises that revive our souls. And that's why Jesus said that he fulfilled and not abolished the law. And so we say with Paul, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And as one commentator put it, it is perfectly complete and completely perfect. Meaning that it needs neither addition, nor does it permit subtraction. The second half of verse 7 uses this word, the testimony of the Lord is sure. And, that, and that's a truth attested to God by himself. It's also a sort of covenantal declaration 
God confirms his word fully such that there is no cause for doubting. You have no reason to doubt what he's given us here. We can trust absolutely with full confidence that it will give us wisdom. That in our simplicity, in our, our need for the knowledge of God to shape how we might live, when we turn to his word, he will make wise our simple minds. Verse 8 describes the precepts or statutes of the Lord. These are specific aspects of God's direction for our lives. We use maps all the time, going from place to place. I, I depend so much on my, the GPS on my phone to get me where I need to go. And uh, I, I, we were on a trip the other day, and it took me to a business that um, I, I needed coffee badly. And uh, the, the coffee shop was shut down. We were in the middle of, of nowhere, Kansas, and, and I needed this to, to continue on our trip. Um, Human maps will fail us. But every detail of the Bible that guides how we live is right. It will never fail us. It will get us perfectly to where we need to go. God has guaranteed it himself. And not only that, but it ought to cause our hearts to rejoice. For example, when we think about the, the biblical commands that shape our lives, we might think about the need to rest and observe the Sabbath. Or the call, the high calling to disciple our children for family worship. And it's easy when we see all the things that God has called us as his people to, even to be conformed to the image of Christ, it's easy to see that these biblical precepts or commands are a burden, not a joy. But the psalmist here says that they cause our hearts to rejoice. If we really see God's commands for what they are, it will cause us to rejoice. The second half of verse 8 says the commandments of the Lord are pure. And I think it's because we so often to tend to view this wisdom of Scripture as a burden that the psalmist then declares that God's commands are pure, enlightening the eyes. Some translations use the word radiant over pure. And the word pure is different from perfect in verse 7, in that where perfection implies no error, purity implies no corruption or darkness. We hear these stories all the time of authoritarian dictators. see them in, in, in books and in movies. People who abuse their power. Their commands are used to bring oppression, bondage. They're full of darkness. But God is an authority figure whose commands are full of light. There is no darkness in him. And if we trust God's word is infallible, and we read it such that our eyes are opened to trust him, then we will indeed find, not that our eyes are just enlightened, but that our hearts are filled with joy. Verse 9 describes an aspect of God's law that seems a bit odd compared to the others. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Where the other five nouns in verses 7 through 9 are direct terms for the law of God, verse 9 seems not to be. Instead, fear is a sort of characteristic of a faithful Christian. But because every other noun in this poem refers to the law of God, I think we might interpret it this way. The law which prompts the fear of God is clean, enduring forever. A fear of God, in other words, that is properly founded on Scripture, 
is clean or acceptable to God. That sort of fear is healthy. It's good for you. There's nothing in it that is unclean. And just as the pure word of God endures forever, so will the purity of faith for those who genuinely fear him. Finally, the last aspect of God's law, the end of verse 9, is what the ESV describes as rules or rulings. These are his divine decrees. Decrees also sometimes translated as judgments. In God's universal courtroom, all of his judgments are true and righteous altogether. God is the ultimate picture of the perfect judge, always true to his word, never inclined to render injustice. So we take all of these words for God's law together, and, and the psalmist develops a robust doctrine of the law and the word of God that produces, at the same time, a robust experiential Christianity. To put it simply, this big view of the law of God generates something big in us. And the psalmist points out that if, if our minds are really full of this truth, it should affect our hearts. Verses 10 and 11 show us that the truth is more valuable than all the things of this world. Verse 10 again, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Do we live as though God's word is more valuable than any amount of money? Do our priorities and the way we order our time reflect such a reality? The truth here is that his words are better than much fine gold. And even if we don't make a lot of money, it's easy to live in a frame of mind where we desire the objects we can buy. We're const if you're like me, often I'm thinking about the next thing that I might obtain. And so it's not, not so much about the money or how much money I have, but what I can get with the money that I do have. And we tend to obsess over it. And we mull it over. When we should be chewing on the word of God, we're chewing on the things that we can get to make ourselves more comfortable, to make our lives better. And the second part of verse 10 reminds us that the sweetest thing we could ever taste is the honey of the law of the Lord. No amount of earthly comforts can compare to the sweetness of God's revelation of knowing Him, walking with Him. Before we get to the final section of Psalm 19, we see verse 11 which points out that in God's law there is both a warning and a reward. Verse 11, Moreover by them, by, by the law, the rules, all the things contained in God's word, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Our king is a covenantal king who engages us with both promised blessings and threatenings. Children who are raised in covenant community are promised blessings if they make their faith their own. If they, if they realize the sign and seal that their baptism pointed to. But we're warned that if we don't obey his word, if we don't look out his revelation and, and see his revelation specially contained in his word, then we will perish under his wrath. But for those of us who keep his law, it is only possible by the word of Christ as we'll see, we will earn the greatest reward. 
With that in mind, let's look at how we ought to respond to God's revelation. We've seen that God reveals himself in the skies, now the scriptures, and finally that that demands we respond in worship. Verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Calvin points out that the third part of the psalm, as it moves from the Father's creative work to the Word embodied in the Son, finally takes on the work of the Word by the influence of the Spirit of Christ. And, and so sometimes the Reformers and, and theologians will speak of a threefold pattern of divine revelation. We often talk about the natural or, or general revelation of God's works, the special revelation of His Word, but there is a real sense in, we, in which we can carve out a third category. A third category that we might describe as the applied revelation of God. It's that application of, of, of God to the Spirit in, in our very souls. God applies it to us by the power of His Spirit so that we turn to Him. Some commentators also observe that the soul reviving of the law in verse 7 involves a double meaning. It revives but also calls the faithful to repent and return. It's in that spirit of repentant revival which the psalmist in verses 12 through 14 speaks and calls every Christian to share in. He poses first this rhetorical question, who can discern his errors? Can, can any of us discern our errors? And, and, and the answer implied by the psalmist is no. There's a kind of sin that is hidden. We can't even discern the ways in which we sin, the full extent of them. Those sins that we commit in ignorance. The people of Israel would have been well aware of this category of sin because sacrifices were prescribed for this very situation. The sins that they committed unaware. Sin, according to our definition, is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It doesn't require premeditation. We don't have to think about it first or even realize that we did it after the fact. Sin is simply any act that violates the will of God. And so we are called to God that would to pray to God that He would forgive us for the sins that we commit unaware. Verse 13 describes a second kind of sins that we commit. The psalmist says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. So there's the sins that we, we do without even thinking about them, not even realizing that we did them after the fact. But then there are sins, and this presumption is a big word, sins that we commit fully aware of what we're doing. We know full well when we give ourselves over to laziness, to indulgence and, and comforts. And we reason to ourselves and God by saying, well, this happened, so I deserve this thing. I'm entitled to, to sin, really. And God's revelation prompts this prayer that we examine ourselves worshipfully and ask him to restrain us so that these sins, in David's words, do not have dominion over us. This is another warning. A few engage in a habit of committing sin after sin, willingly, presumptuously. They may have dominion over you. And we ought to pray that God would guard us against such things. Pray especially that he would guard us and keep us blameless of great transgression. The final words of verse 13. 
there are serious premeditated sins that we can commit. We see pastors all the time engaging in horrible sins that nobody even knew about, falling from their ministries. Every person is susceptible to the influence of sin. And we ought to pray that God's Spirit would guard us, that He would restrain us, that we would be blameless. Finally, we come to this wonderful concluding prayer. It's one of the best-known prayers in the whole of the Psalms for good reason. Verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If you know David, and, and, and David knows himself, he has engaged in great transgression. He's committed hidden sins and presumptuous sins. He's guilty. He asks for repentance. And the only way he can do so is by work of the Lord, who is his rock and his redeemer. We know that God judges not just our outward actions, but our inward thoughts. And so it's not just a matter of have I done, have I not done the bad things that God condemns, but have I done the good things that he requires of me? It's a sin itself to neglect the good works that God has called us. And that's why the psalmist prays that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in God's sight. We talked about in our Sunday school lesson, um, God has a certain kind of worship that he prescribes. That shapes how we worship as Presbyterians, especially. But, but not just in the life of of the church corporately, but in your own life, there's a way that God wants you to worship Him. Paul in Romans 12 prays for this very thing, that his life would be a living sacrifice acceptable to God. And so the psalm concludes with the notion of God as a mighty rock, that maker of the universe who we can always depend on, whose word is sure, infallible, but also as a redeemer. It's the special revelation of God that teaches us of this person of Christ, his redeeming work. What we, what we spoke of in the um, 34th question of the Heidelberg Catechism, why do you call him Lord? Because he's ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood and freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. It's sweeter than anything the earth could ever give us. The freedom that we have in Christ. The hope that we have in our Redeemer. And as I said at the beginning, God's revelation in the skies and the scriptures demands we respond and worship. A final few thoughts on how we ought to respond practically. Verse 10 tells us that we ought to love God's word. It's sweeter than anything of this world. Verse 11 compels us to listen to it, to keep it, to find, to realize that great reward, to hear, as, as Psalm 81, again in Sunday school, uh, tells us we're so prone not to listen to it, to not hear God. We're called to love God's word. We're called to listen to it. Verses 12 and 13 say that we should pray diligently for the grace of God. We would experience that grace. Praying for those hidden and open sins against him. And finally, verse 14 says that we ought to long to please God, to worship in a way that he loves, that he has prescribed. We began with a word from an astronaut 
who understood that God was revealed in the universe, but, but did not know him. And to my knowledge, continues to refuse to acknowledge him, like many men do. So let us end, then, with a word from an astronaut who was a Christian, who walked on the moon. James Irwin was known for his Christian ministry just as well as his mission, and he put it this way, God walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon. The redemptive work of our Lord, even revealed to us in Psalm 19, that applied revelation in the heart of the Christian that we can only find through the condescension of Christ, the crediting of his righteousness, the filling of his spirit, that's what it means for God to be a redeemer. And so I'll give you just a moment to meditate, to ponder. Do you love God's word? Do you listen to it? Ought you pray more diligently for the grace of God for these two kinds of sins or long more in your heart to please Him? Consider these things for a moment and then I will close this in prayer. Father in heaven, maker of all those grand objects in the universe, the greatest being to ever exist and by whom all things came into existence, we worship you this morning. We join together with the words that Paul prays in Colossians and ask that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we would walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, and bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of you, strengthened with all power, according to your glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in your inheritance the saints in light. Lord, we thank you for this great redemptive work that you completed us. We ask that we would continue to see you in the skies and the scriptures, and that we would pour out our hearts in that worship of you as you so deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.